You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be finding out how important pain relief is for dementia patients. Definitely. I think pain is ex- extremely undertreated in people with dementia. And how socioeconomic class affects how women deal with severe congenital abnormalities. We found that in the least deprived mothers, i.e. the most affluent mothers, about four-fifths, about 80% of the mums decided to go forward and have a termination of pregnancy. But before that, an article by Edwin Heathcote in this week's BMJ looks at how good design techniques can make cities a more friendly place to grow old gracefully. Earlier this week, I talked to a design expert about this movement. I've come to the Helen Hamlin Centre for Design at the Royal College of Art in London to talk to Jeremy Myerson, the director here. Um, Jeremy, first of all, could you just let us know a bit about the Helen Hamlin Centre and what what your ethos is? Okay, we are uh, a research centre at the Royal College of Art. We have three labs. One is to do with ageing, one is to do with, with healthcare, and the third is to do with work and city. And our ethos is to have practicing designers, architects, industrial designers, graphic designers, and so on, working as researchers, looking at people-centered solutions to how we live in cities. What do you mean by people-centered solutions? I think it's design solutions that put the user at the heart of the process, rather than finding an application for a new technology or trying to solve some abstract technical problem we are looking at human behaviour. We have anthropologists on our team. And what we're trying to do is to come up with design systems and processes and products that address real need. Sure. Now, I've come to talk to you um, on the back of this article we've got about ageing in cities, in age-friendly cities, mm-hmm. um, which is a WHO programme. Yeah. Um, could you just tell us a little bit more about that programme? The WHO have got a very ambitious programme around what they call age-friendly cities, and they've also got a very ambitious programme around active ageing. And these two things really coincide because the built environment, how we organise our housing, our workplaces, our public spaces and transport around the city, um, that has a major implication for how well people age in place. And active ageing is all about um, counteracting the inevitable frailties and disabilities that come with ageing with an intelligent design of our cities. The story that Edwin Pates in his article is kind of this move from land paternalism to a much more uh, engaged way of providing devices or designing the environment to allow people to be independent a bit more. Is that something that's you know a big movement? It's a massive movement and the issue of how one designs for an aging population is very much tied into the argument for social inclusion. So instead of what you call the bland paternalism of putting people in retirement homes and and taking them out of the view of the mainstream of society and away from workplaces, for example, and public spaces. We're trying to make the city more age-friendly so that older people have more profile, more visibility within the city. And that's a very different approach from a generation ago. What's fueled that change? There are a number of drivers of this change, uh, one of which is purely demographic. But I think the new old, the baby boomer generation who are coming up to retirement age, they're very different from the old old. Um, the new old, you know, were the first teenagers, they're using media, um, uh, they're computer savvy, 
Um, uh, they are very active and vocal and demanding consumers. And the WHO has this uh, categorization where they talk about three stages of active aging being, which is to do with the physiological state of the human body, mm. um, uh, belonging, your social networks. And then the third state is, is becoming, which suggests an aspirational view. There's a move to kind of integrate health, social care, mm. all that kind of stuff mm. together and, and make yeah. take a much more holistic view. Do you think design yeah. is going to be, you know, crucial to that? I think design is crucial to that more holistic view. If you just take, for example, a project we've got here at the Royal College of Art, we're redesigning the emergency ambulance with the London Ambulance Service and we're also looking at the whole issue of the future of emergency mobile healthcare. A lot of people, especially older people, are picked up in a very large ambulance, a very expensive ambulance, and a very um, wasteful, fuel-consuming ambulance, carted off to hospital where they clog up the system for some minor procedure, and then they've got to go home again. And I think uh, policymakers are now very interested in use of design to design the underlying system and, and service uh, concepts um, that, that make a more holistic framework. Design approaches to ageing are much more to do with prevention than cure. And a lot of the problems that medics have to deal with are to do with systemic design failures, like lack of suitable accommodation, lack of facilities to look after your health, uh, inability to take medication correctly because the labelling and packaging is not correct, social isolation and, and mental health problems because of issues to do with access to public space and transport. So medics are kind of mopping up um, the problems that designers of our built environment have created. And it's time that designers started putting it right upstream. And Edwin's very interesting article is available online now on bmj.com. Now, dementia patients can be hard to treat and often suffer from behavioural disturbances. Online this week on bmj.com is a research article that's been investigating the use of analgesia to treat these patients and reduce agitation. I'm joined in the studio by Clive Ballard from the Wolfson Centre for Age-Related Diseases at King's College London to talk to us about his research. Hi Clive, could you just summarise your research for us? Yes, well what we did was a, a randomised controlled trial in 352 patients with agitation and in the context of dementia in nursing homes in Norway, in, uh, in Bergen in, in fact. Uh, it was a cluster trial so that um, half of the, the care homes, the patients in those homes got treated with, with pain relief using a stepped care model following the American Geriatric Association model, but in most cases that was just paracetamol. In the other cluster, people got usual care and treatment, so they weren't denied treatment for pain, but they weren't specifically augmented in this in this systematic way. And over the over the course of eight weeks of this this randomised treatment, there was a very significant improvement in agitation in the the, the patients receiving pain relief. About eight points on the Cohen Mansfield agitation inventory, uh, and this deteriorated again following uh, the stopping of the analgesic treatment. So quite a strong outcome. It was quite a strong outcome, and although in this particular trial it wasn't compared to another treatment, if you look at the literature around antipsychotic treatment, for example, that's actually a slightly bigger effect than you see with antipsychotics. 
Is there anything unique about treatment of patients with dementia in Norway um, that might affect these results? Well, I think the, the management of, of people with agitation in the context of dementia varies a lot um, from individual to individual. And I think Norway is probably very, very similar in, in overall management to, to most kind of Western countries in terms of the treatment approaches. Um, perhaps there are some subtle differences by uh, law. The Norwegian government actually um, stipulated that, that nursing home units have to be small, so they have a, they have less residents than in most other European countries. Uh, so that's one difference. And there is a little bit of evidence that perhaps there's slightly less use of antipsychotic drugs in Norway, although it's it's still quite a high level of usage. So I think there are some subtle differences, but broadly the, the, the approach to treatment and care is very, very similar in Norway as it is to most of Europe. So you said most people receive paracetamol, so that means you don't think it was a sedative effect that was at play? No, we looked at this quite carefully. Uh, 75% of the people got paracetamol uh, instigated, another 10% got paracetamol dose optimised. So actually it was only a very small proportion of people who got analgesics with potential sedative effects. Was this kind of ongoing treatment or was it a, on a PRM basis? No, it was, reg- it was regular treatment. So for the paracetamol, for example, it was four times a day at the, uh, the 500 milligrams If the dose. treatment's ongoing and people are responding to that, to the pain relief, at what point should you look for an underlying pathology or something like that? Well, I think that probably should be part of it as well, although I think in the majority of people it's not that it's particularly challenging pathology. The most common reason for pain in older people is arthritis, and I suspect you know that, that this it, it's no different in people with dementia. So many individuals probably won't need specific additional treatments, but, but obviously if pain is identified, it's good to at least have a, a straightforward clinical uh, evaluation as to whether there should be further investigations or something further to be done. So your research really highlights the role of analgesia in the management of dementia patients? Definitely. I think pain is ex- extremely undertreated in people with dementia um, compared to sort of all, uh, people of similar age. Without dementia, there's far less use of analgesics. And I think it probably also shows that even lower levels of pain that perhaps wouldn't normally be treated with analgesics may also contribute to, to agitation. And in fact, as part of this, the the Alzheimer's Society has been working with the Department of Health to create a best practice um, pathway for behavioural symptoms in people with dementia. And this is now very much part of that pathway. I mean, it won't work for everybody, um, but I think it is an an important treatment option in the management of these often very difficult to treat patients. Those guidelines say that analgesia should be a first-line treatment. What should happen is an initial assessment, obviously, of the behaviour and potential contributing factors. If the symptoms aren't improving, if things aren't getting better over over three or four weeks or, you know, the risk or severity is higher and a pharmacological option is the best way forward, then I would suggest this might well be a very good first-line pharmacological option in many people. Mm. So if you had a bottom-line message for for your clinical colleagues what would that be well related to analgesia i think they'll probably have two bottom line messages one always look for pain and treat it if it's present secondly even if there isn't overt pain present and somebody's agitated it might well be worth a a four or eight week trial of, of analgesia and that research paper is freely available online on bmj.com We've covered the socioeconomic basis of health before in the podcast, and particularly how it's affected neonatal mortality. And now research published this week on bmj.com looks further into that topic.
I'm joined on the line now by Elizabeth Draper, who's a professor of perinatal and paediatric epidemiology at the University of Leicester. She and her colleagues have been looking at socioeconomic inequalities um, and the outcome of pregnancies which are affected by congenital abnormalities. Elizabeth, could you just, for a start, give us a summary of your research? What were you looking for? So, um... The government have been attempting to reduce the gap in infant mortality due to um, deprivation. So they set themselves a target to reduce the infant mortality rate by 10% by the year 2010. And, and they've tried to reduce this gap by focusing on a number of issues, including reducing sudden infant death, smoking, promoting breastfeeding and, and improving antenatal care. And whilst those are all positive ways that you could try and reduce um, infant mortality. Our research has identified that a half of the gap is explained by preterm births and a further quarter of that gap is due to deaths from congenital anomalies. And this piece of work was concentrating on congenital anomalies themselves. Okay, so our listeners can have a proper look at your methods and which anomalies you chose and how you did that in your research paper, which is free online. But can you tell us what you found? When we joined all the anomalies together as one group, that the notification rates for the least deprived mothers compared to the most deprived mothers were very similar. So we were seeing very similar rates of these congenital anomalies across all deprivation levels. When we look, then looked further into whether um, the mothers had gone through antenatal screening and that the cases had been detected antenatally, we saw very similar antenatal detection rates in both the least deprived group and the most deprived group. 86% of these anomalies had been detected antenatally. Mm. The slight difference in the gestational age at detection, and it appeared that in the more deprived mums, slightly less of those um, anomalies were detected before 22 weeks, which clearly has an implication for the timing of termination of pregnancy, if that's the decision that's going to be made. Yeah. But that's something that we needed to think about in more detail. And it wasn't statistically significant in this study, but okay. it is something we will be looking at further. So we had the similar rates of antenatal detection of about 86% in both the least and most deprived mothers. But then when we looked to see what happens subsequent to antenatal detection, we found that in the least deprived mothers, i.e. the most affluent mothers, about four-fifths, about 80% of the mums decided to go forward and have a termination of pregnancy. This compared to less than two-thirds of the mums in the most deprived group. Mm. So does the uh, increase in terminations uh, amongst higher socioeconomic groups, has that led to a sort of skewing of the, um, the data about neonatal death? The implications of a lower proportion of babies being terminated with a major congenital anomaly is that you have a, a larger proportion of babies being born alive who are at a high risk of neonatal mortality. Mm. So the picture that was painted before you did this study was, is perhaps a bit more nuanced than, than people first realised. Did you have a look at, you know, did you have any idea about why the, there's a difference in termination rates? Well, we haven't looked at this in any detail and we've, we, we want to set up a, um, a study to explore um, whether socioeconomic variation um, 
changes uptake of various tests and um, timing of fetal anomaly scans and blood tests for chromosomal anomalies. We want to look at how information on risk is delivered, how women from different socioeconomic backgrounds can interpret the information that's provided for them and whether indeed socioeconomic or cultural differences in the perceptions of individual types of congenital anomaly exist mm -hmm. and if so how they would impact on women's decision to continue or terminate an affected pregnancy and to look along the whole antenatal pathway to see what it is that impacts upon women's decision making. Yeah, so uh, that's research to, to come in the future. Indeed. So to do your research, you really needed the data from these congenital abnormalities registers. Could you just tell me a little bit more about them? Our congenital anomaly register was established in 1997, and the whole reason of uh, setting up the register was because we knew that the data provided by the National Congenital Anomaly System um, from the Office of National Statistics was producing data that was an underestimate of the actual birth prevalence of these conditions. The National Anomaly Register that you mentioned is set up in the wake of the thalidomide disaster in the 50s um, with a role to prevent that kind of tragedy again. But that register is now gone. So these anomaly registers that you that you used are the only ones doing this kind of surveillance now. Indeed they are. And... Um, we currently only cover about uh, less than half of the population of England, and indeed that doesn't cover any of London at all. And as a group, uh, Binacar, we have been funded by the Health Quality Improvement Partnership. However, the funding that um, we ha currently have is only available until um, March 2012, and we're um, working closely with HKIP to try and um, establish a more secure route of funding, both for the surveillance and indeed for the individual regional congenital anomalies registers. Are you worried in the midst of the funding cuts that are going on that these registers might be sort of forced to to quietly cease and that there won't be any sort of public outcry about it? I think parents think that this is a routine piece of information that would be collected and used anyway. Mm. And I think people are quite shocked when they realise that what they think is routine data collection isn't. And I think also that parents think that anything that's collected in their notes can be aggregated together in some form to to use in a, in a useful way, but of course it can't be. Mm. So you have to have specialised systems established in order to be able to to carry out the relevant analyses and monitoring and surveillance that's required um, in a standardised and comparable way between different institutions and um, different areas. As I said earlier, that research paper is available online now. That's all for this week. Next week, with the media spotlight in the UK exposing how tabloids get their stories, we'll be discussing how papers get hold of supposedly confidential medical details. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.